The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. When you were aboard, you were involved in some unpleasant activities. I helped to assimilate millions. I don't mean to be insensitive, but do you ever feel shame about what you did? Frequently. How do you manage to keep going, knowing that you've done such horrible things? I have no choice. Guilt is irrelevant? On the contrary. My feelings of remorse help me remember what I did and prevent me from taking similar actions in the future. Guilt can be a difficult but useful emotion. It's certainly difficult. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May 10th. 2018. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Shaming the left for its role in assimilating innocent victims into its sinister collective is but one of the necessary things that we should do to reverse the scourge of political correctness that has infected our university teaching and learning environments. So says the controversial and outspoken Gad Sad, who is but one of four dynamic guests joining us on the show today. It's going to be a good one, eh, Robert? Oh, if it was anything like the meeting that uh, both you and I attended on uh, Saturday, it's going to be a great one. Yes, indeed. People will really enjoy this show. I think so, because we'll be interviewing each of them in a one-on-one interview recorded this past weekend at Western University. It's a packed show that will get underway right after we encourage you to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and on SoundCloud, Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. So, Robert, it's interesting that this show originated on a university campus, and there's no question that our connection to the university community has continued over the years since our departure from CHRW Radio, the university's campus station. So I guess it shouldn't be too surprising that the both of us found ourselves once again on the campus of Western University this past weekend attending the annual meeting of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. Now, if you recall... It was at last year's SAFS meeting that Jordan Peterson was among the guests we recorded and posted to Just Right's YouTube page, where you can still access the presentations there. And where would they go to do that, Robert? Well, just go to YouTube slash Just Right Media, or they can go to our website, justrightmedia.org, and the links to all the social media, including YouTube, are there. Well, let us first begin by extending our very hearty thank you to the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, and in particular its president, Mark Mercer, who was so kind as to welcome us to this very exclusive and prestigious gathering. I thought some interesting people there, didn't you think? Actually, you know, I was thinking when I was uh, standing there videotaping the, uh, the events that I'm in the company of freedom fighters, 
these people are not only some of them are victims as the speakers are mm -hmm. but uh, they're freedom fighters they're putting themselves on the line because right now it's very uh, how should i say socially inappropriate to stand up for free speech, oddly enough, on university campuses. And I'm surrounded by, I think there was about 75 people there, uh, the vast majority of which were PhDs. Uh, they're all university professors, a lot of them very distinguished, some of them retired, and some were just people who um, heard about the event and came in off the street, uh, but were very well behaved and very well engaged in the yes. whole discussion about free speech. And what all of our four guests have in common is that they're all academics who have had experience, you know, with the same kind of social phenomenon of that that was experienced by Jordan Peterson and Lindsay Shepard. And that was basically having their free speech suppressed by the university on which they worked. In fact... Lindsay Shepard herself is one of our four guests today, who, as many of our regular listeners may already know, is a teaching assistant at Wilfrid Laurier University, working in the field of cultural analysis and social theory. And she found herself facing the same dilemma as Jordan Peterson, and soon herself became a celebrity. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it was great to meet uh, Lindsay, a very nice uh very nice lady. As a matter of fact, all of our all of our guests that you'll hear today were very nice people, and oh, awesome. for anybody to, to anybody to criticize them for being not politically correct, I think these people should have their head examined. These these are not people who are a danger to society. As a matter of fact, they are the exact opposite. I call them freedom fighters, and I applaud their efforts and uh, really lament the way they've been treated by the universities. Now, of course, Lindsay was joined at the event by Professor David Haskell, also of Wilfrid Laurier University, whose area of expertise falls under digital media and journalism. And together, he and Lindsay, I thought Robert, put on one of the most entertaining and engaging presenta presentations <laughs> on this issue. I mean, the whole room was just laughing out loud after that opener. Wasn't that something? When we put that video up um, in the next few weeks, uh, I think people will be pleasantly surprised at well, how uplifting this presentation was. I was particularly taken aback by David Haskell's presence and his demeanor <laughs> and his he humor. Was, he was, was very disarming. I'm, I was watching him. I'm going, wow, this is entertainment and information all at once. Oh, yeah. So it, it was a lot of fun to do this. So we're giving you a heads up on this presentation because it will be just right. We'll be posting this to our YouTube channel in the coming weeks ahead, as Robert said. We'll and as a matter of fact, if you want to know when that's going to happen, I mean, this is a we have several hours of video to go through, so if you go to our YouTube channel to subscribe, you will be notified as soon as those videos are up. Excellent. And we'll also be joined today by the controversial and outspoken Gad Sad of the John Molson School of Business at Concordia University, and who's most widely known as being the host of The Sad Truth. What a great name for his show. <laughs> yes. And finally, not a speaker, but a guest at the SAFS event, we will be joined by Professor Rick Mehta of Acadia University, who finds himself, as reported in the April SAFS newsletter by Chris Larson, running, quote, afoul of the speech police by criticizing a psychology thesis, which was about coming to terms with sexual identity through interpretive dance, if you can believe it, and chiding opposition leader Andrew Scheer for expelling from caucus a senator who suggested suggested that some First Nations children benefited from residential schools, end quote. So, 
Here we go, Robert. I got to hold the camera while Robert led our first discussion with Lindsay Shepard. Lindsay Shepard, you're quite the celebrity. How's celebrity status uh, treating you? Oh, I don't feel like I'm a celebrity. You're almost a household name in North America, at least. Yeah, and it's nice to be like in the niche of like free speech and stuff like that. Yeah. So you're on the right side. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. I think um, it's important to have current students as you know, like role models at least, right? Because um, like what was touched on in the talk, people students are afraid of, of their marks. They're afraid of speaking out because there are consequences. Um, you can find yourself, you know, targeted. You know, when I went to university in the before time. I had absolutely no problem of speaking out, and everybody spoke out, and we had lively discussions in our philosophy classes, in our psychology classes. What you're telling us is actually, it's chilling. Yes. And um, so someone brought up how there's this environment of safety and comfort for the students, and you should never be made to feel uncomfortable. And what I wanted to say, but didn't have a chance to, is this actually connects to just university marketing. Is it really about critical thinking and and classroom discussions anymore? No. Like, what they want to get out to students for recruitment is all the opportunities. You know, you can live in a residence building. You can have fun. There's lots of job opportunities after. You can do a co-op program. You can be engaged. This is the word they use. This was my degree is from Simon Fraser. They were called like the engaged university. You know, you can volunteer. There's all these opportunities to have a fun student life. So it's almost like it's not really about the intellectual environment anymore. It's about the social environment. That's amazing uh, perspective that you're thinking that perhaps all of this left wing, if I could call it that, we'll get into that in a second, um, talk is designed to promote a university and market a university. I think so. It's kind of neoliberal in a way, even though um, they always bash neoliberalism, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, corporatism and all that. Our radio show is called Just Right, mm-hmm. and our tagline is uh, not right wing, mm-hmm. just right. right. And you came out w- early on in this as a left winger. Then you put out a video just a couple of months ago wherein you say that you are no longer a left winger. Mm -hmm. And one of the phrases you used or the reasons that you said you're no longer a left winger is you describe the left as wanting to make the world boring. Mm -hmm. Now, Bob and I probably would have said that, used the word egalitarianism, everybody the same, Mm -hmm. no differences. But I love that expression of boring. Do you want to elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. I mean, so one of my principles is I just want to let people do what they want to do as long as it's not hurting anybody, right? And I mean really hurting anybody. If I want to host a talk with the far-right personality Faith Goldie, which my group at Laurier did try to do, just let us do it. And if no one shows up and it's a complete failure, well, then that'll show for itself. Well, no, we had a lineup of 300 people wanting to come to that talk. It was shut down by fire alarm by, you know, these radical activists. Again, they want to ruin people's fun. You know, it's fun for people to go to an outing, see a speaker, get a chance to ask a question at the end. That's fun. But no, they, they just have to shut it down because uh, it's something they don't like. So they have to have control over it. So they won't let anybody else do what they want to do. And that's fundamentally against my principles. I want to let people do what they want to do. I think they should have their social justice events. Um, sometimes I attend those events just to see what they're like. And, you know, even the right wing sometimes has too much discourse about, you know, moral purity and what's, you know, there's 
too much gay marriage or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I again, I don't believe that that's wrong. I just want to let people do what they want to do. Right. So you're more or less a classical liberal. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Labels mean a lot to people, and when we misuse them or don't understand them, I think that's when a lot of confrontation begins. And we just listened to a questioner in the discussion at the SAFS meeting, uh, Francis, say that she's a socialist, and she doesn't particularly like being called left-wing. But everybody's calling all these agitators left-wingers. And she's not an agitator, so she's saying that they're not left-wingers. I'm a left-winger as a socialist. These aren't left-wingers. They're right-wingers or have more in common with right-wingers than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Can you define for us, because we talk about this all the time on the show, what your impression of what it means to be left-wing and right-wing are? Yeah, it's almost hard because it's in flux, like currently, like the way I see it. And a lot of people have made the argument, just don't even bother with those labels anymore because you actually might find that some of your opinions are far right, some are far left, um, some are center. But I would see the left, I agree with them insofar as like socially progressive policies. Like I believe in having welfare. You know, I believe in safe injection sites. I believe in um, Canada's healthcare system, socialized medicine, things like that. That is all stuff that I would have in common with them. But what's becoming definitive of the left is, like I explain in my video, like, yes, the, the totalitarianism of, of suppressing discourse and how they think they're in control. And so, yeah, I agree with Francis on that, is they are co-opting the discourse of the left, but actually being very fascist themselves. Yes, yeah, so they're, they are trying to make society boring. And you, you brought up egalitarianism. That makes society boring in a lot of ways you know how how far are you going to go with limiting competition limiting personal responsibility and things like this what would i define the right as my impression originally you know before all this was their anti-environment pro-corporate want lower taxes free markets but the thing is there's so many divides even in the right so you you also have like a sect of the, the right who hate the corporatism and they're actually pro-environment. They want to live on a farm. They want everyone to leave them alone, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that could be maybe more libertarian, right libertarian. But yeah, all that to say is I think it's still in flux. And would, you, would it be correct to say that there are so many different, for better, want of a better word, sects mm. within these ideologies, left and right, that it's the labels sometimes get in the way unless you're very explicit about how you define left and right. I suppose so, but, I mean, for example, Frances was saying how she hates being called a right-winger. You know, maybe just deal with it. Like, people were calling me a right-winger, and at first, that's why I put out a a message um, that said, you know, I am a leftist. I'm not trying to advance any right-wing agenda, um, because people were accusing me of that. And it's like, I guess if you're a leftist, you might react kind of viscerally to being called something you don't see yourself as. But now I take the approach of, like, I don't care what you call me. All that matters is I know what I am. Right? It disturbs me with one of the questions after your speech that you said that you might get your Ph.D. You'll find mm-hmm. a professor to uh, help you with your Ph.D., but mm-hmm. you don't see good prospects of getting employed with your Ph.D., I cannot believe that this kind of uh, pressure is, is treating you that way. It's absolutely disgusting. Uh, what do you see yourself doing after your PhD, or if you um, get it? Yeah, I'm, I'm still leaving it pretty open, and I want to leave it open, um, because, you know, 
I kind of maybe want to fill a gap that would be needed to be filled. So, for example, the journalist who broke my story, Christy Blatchford. Mm-hmm. It, like, we really need people like her in journalism. Um, Barbara Kay, Jonathan Kay. Um, they're one of the good ones, or yes, three of the good ones yeah, right there. and they're all part of, they're not my age, you know. Who, who is my age, part of my generation, is going to fill that? I don't know. <laughs> we went to um, a Jordan Peterson event here at the University of Western Ontario last year, and it was attended by, it was a full attendance. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of people turned out, all, if you want to use the word millennials, mm-hmm. all of, f- from your cohort. Mm-hmm. And they were all well-dressed, well-behaved, and gave him a standing ovation. Mm-hmm. And he's receiving the same welcome throughout the world right now, pushing his book. Mm-hmm. Does that not give you hope for your generation that this will subside this nonsense from these privilege seekers, as Francis called them? Well, the thing is, like, yes, he has a great following, and yet what you've described is awesome. Um, But still, institutionally, what's happening is, you know, I'm not necessarily against affirmative action, but, like, they, they want to hire marginalized people. Which, again, I'm not against that, but... Except now that you're marginalized. Uh, the thing is, like, when you start to fill all the jobs with radical people, and a lot of them are, they're really radical people who... who um, you know, there's been cases on Twitter of, of TAs, for example, so people in the same position as I was, um, saying, like, ha, 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 I always call on the white males last in class. It's like, <laughs> I guess at least you're being honest about it, but... Uh, you know, if we imagine education being taken over by that, that's really dismaying. Um, that's not really acceptable. And as for, to go back to what you said about not being hireable, the thing is, these a lot of these departments, so for example, communication studies, uh, my department, cultural analysis and social theory, which is um, interdisciplinary, they're kind of like cults. Um, they behave and like cults. You know, for example, so in communication studies at Laurier, a very high percentage of the faculty are interested in like queer, transgender, non-binary, sexual identity, gender identity things. You know, I guess that means that if you don't research those things or you are not of that identity yourself, what is your chance of getting hired in that department? So I, I just kind of worry a bit about kind of the hire people like us kind of mentality. It's a, a little bit worrying for me. Well, yeah. we both wish you well. And certainly do hope you get hired. And we look forward to hearing your saga continue uh, for the better. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. So these guys made fun of your weight and made you feel ashamed? Yes, I was just trying to do my job as a food critic. And they all ganged up on me and said I was fat. All right, why don't you take me back to what happened? I was in the locker room. And I was in my underwear And these kids walked by Then I looked in the mirror And I thought I looked kind of ripped And so I asked one of the kids If he would take a picture of me And he did And I looked at the picture And I looked pretty ripped So later at home I put the picture up on my Yelp account And I typed in Don't I look ripped And I thought people would be stoked on me And this morning I saw the comments on Twitter And some people called me names and said I wasn't ripped and they said I was fat and I didn't have muscles. The internet made fun of me and (laughs) (coughs) Well, Eric, maybe you shouldn't have put a picture of you in your underwear up on social media. Hey! You got a f***ing problem, Mackie? No, PZ principal. Because body shaming is f***ing serious and I'm not gonna allow that in my school. Nobody 
should have to feel that kind of shame. Here. Yes, we're intimate. Yeah, yeah. Now, very pleased to be with Gad Sad, one of those dexterous voices out there on the right, sort of on the right, the left. Uh, let's just say just right. I'm an ideas <laughs> no, man. You that can't play label on, me. on words. Dextre dexterous voices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not sinister like a lot of people are. Now, we just got through um, a great lecture by you at the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, and in it. You gave us an insight into a novel idea that you're putting into a book coming out next year. Uh, do you have a working title on the book yet? So the working title is The Parasitic Mind. It used to be called Death of the West by a Thousand Cuts, but it doesn't have enough hope. And so right now it's The Parasitic Mind, How Political Correctness and the Thought Police Erode Free Exchange of Ideas. We, we don't know exactly what it's going to be, but, but Death of the West simply sounded too ominous. Yeah. I need to spend a bit less time uh, explaining the ailment and more time uh, explaining the cure. The solution. The solution. Uh, yes, explain the problem, but then offer a solution. And that's when I talked at the end about the nomological networks that teaches people how to think better. Isn't this nomological network idea more or less what somebody would say is just gathering information? and integrating it into a, a whole so that you can make a reasonable solution. Yeah, but, but there's, a, there's a unique, if you like, epistemological approach to that. It's, you're basically saying, what are all the... Can I look at different cultures? Could I look at different time periods? Could I d look at different methodologies? Could I look at different paradigms? In other words, it's, it's much broader than the typical information acquisition process that most sensible people would ever do. It's actually teaching people that there, there is a broad range of data out there that if you develop the discipline to learn how to acquire it, then many of these contentious decisions can become a lot clearer. But you really have to develop the, the discipline to know where to look for that data. I guess so you still have to do it in a scientific way. Exactly. 
really Charles Darwin had done exactly that. I mean, at the time, he didn't call it nomological networks of cumulative evidence, but what did he effectively do? He basically said, I need to demonstrate how evolution works, and I'm going to do it through a very systematic, methodical, judicious collection of data stemming from very different fields, animal husbandry and zoology and, and you know, uh, plant ecology and fossil remains and uh, biodiversity. So there wasn't a singular set of data that made it compelling that his theory was vertical, but rather once he puts it all together, it becomes unassailable. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you'll agree that most people typically will not approach most problems with that level of information gathering sophistication and i'm arguing that for many of the important problems that we face you really need to develop that discipline when you talk about the parasitical mind what would be the quickest way you would define that for someone yeah so the idea is that in the same way that there are biological pathogens actual parasites Mm -hmm. that infest that infect yeah i found that fascinating the brains of organisms rendering them maladaptive, right? I gave many examples, but I'll give one here for your listeners. So a a mouse that is infected with a particular parasite loses its innate fear of cats. When it loses its innate fear, then it it goes straight to its demise. Well, I argue that in the same way that there are biological pathogens that could be maladaptive, there is another class of pathogens called idea pathogens that also render us uh, maladaptive in our behaviors, in our thought patterns, in our thinking. And so... The, the, really, the goal of the book is to first explain what those pathogens are, explain the ecosystem in which they've evolved, which is the university setting, mm-hmm. and then offer ways by which we can inoculate ourselves or free ourselves from these pathogens. So this is kind of an analogy to the biology absolutely, the situation. Absolutely. Now, I was interested in some of your solutions that you were talking about, and you're suggesting that we should pursue knowledge. There shouldn't be any identity politics. We should promote intellectual and political diversity and curiosity. What do you do in, a, in an environment where, as we've discovered, quote-unquote, facts don't matter? <laughs> you know? uh, is, is that a real phenomenon? Or is that just our way of expressing our frustration with people who, who aren't interested in, in fact? Or are we doing this for a third party? who's watching the debate between the two immobile sides. You know, you know what I'm uh, well, it certainly is a real phenomenon. The example that I gave in my lecture when I talked about how this uh, radical feminist was upset that I argued that only women can bear children. I mean, when you could negate a reality that is so trivially <laughs> laughable as that, then it is truly a real phenomenon. Well, it's not funny anymore. It's, not, it's tragic, right? The way I think you solve it is that you eventually... I know that they love to use the term to be marginalized. You have to marginalize them out of the the pantheon of public discourse, right? Today, if you are a flat earther, Mm -hmm. you're not going to find many sympathizers of your position. I mean, there is a flat earth society, but most people are... I've never taken them seriously. I thought they were just a social group for fun. (laughs) Maybe. But the bottom line is that, you know, very few people take flat earthers today seriously, Mm -hmm. right? In the same token, you, you have to delegitimize these people but do it in and again in a in a manner that the data speaks against them right so when you say for example there are no sex differences all sex differences are social constructions well there is a way for me to build a nomological network to demonstrate how laughable that position is right i don't have to get into all emotional arguments i don't have to huff and puff right so is your position that there isn't two biological sexes okay let me see how i can build a nomological network to demonstrate how outlandish your position is mm-hmm. how your position i call them 
creationist of the human mind, right? Okay. In the same way that creationism is laughable from an evolutionary perspective, well, if you negate the fact that humans are biological beings, history is not going to look kindly on you. Now, of course, is that argument being directed at the person who's coming at you with the opposing idea, or is it really being directed at a third party? Because I found people on the other side are very, quote, quote, the other side, are very immobile in that right. sense and may never Change care about opinion. facts at all. And so who is, who is the debate for? It, it, look, and in my public engagement, oftentimes it's exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. The person that I'm directly communicating with, there's no amount of evidence that I could yeah. ever offer that they'll, but there's a lot of people that are watching, That's you, right? So if you've got, and, and that one of the reasons why I'm so empowered by you know, having built such a big forum, it's not for ego, it's not for narcissism, it's because you have a bigger megaphone to shape people's mm. minds, right? I mean, and so you're right. Oftentimes, I, people will say to me, well, why did you even engage this guy? He's not worthy of your time. And then I'll answer, I'm, I wasn't engaging him. I was, <laughs> I was doing it for the audience effect. Now, what I found very unique, hearing it from you, because I only hear it from us, is your focus on epistemology because we kind of think that's what our show is primarily about. We talk about epistemology quite explicitly and frequently, and we talk about epistemology as being, of course, the science of knowing how we know what we know. Sure. And you have applied this to various fields. Um, where do you see the, the weakness there the worst in, in the field of epistemology? Is it just in the humanities? Is it everywhere in every department? Uh, well, I mean, some of the fields in the humanities don't even recognize epistemology right they, they, they basically what's are, well what's that right your epistemology is different right so that so there's no there's no you know if you've got venn diagrams there's no place where they intersect where we could meet and, and and converse right well that's a very subjective way of looking at the world isn't it you're almost inside your own head and not going outside it exactly and actually so to, to speak about this sort of uh, uh this inability to have a intersection of the venn diagram one of the things that i talk about which i didn't mention in the talk so I argue that fields like physics or, socio uh, physics or chemistry or biology have what's called consilience. Consilience is a fancy term that's existed for many years, but it was reinvigorated to the lexicon by E.O. Wilson. He wrote a book called Consilience in the late 90s. Consilience refers to unity of knowledge, mm -hmm. right? So physics is more consilient than sociology. Why? Because it has a set of core knowledge. It has a tree of knowledge that is organized. In chemistry, you don't... Upon which the other knowledge is based. It's built, exactly. Yeah, right. So in, in chemistry, you don't have chemists who believe in the periodic table and chemists who don't believe in the periodic <laughs> table, right? So therefore, when you're building a tree of knowledge, you at least have an organized tree that results in consilience. Mm -hmm. That's what evolutionary theory does, for example. It organizes biology across many levels at the cellular, molecular, uh, organism, population, ecological. Well, what happens in the humanities and the social sciences is that very, very early in any process, there is no possibility to have a consilient tree. Some of us in the, I don't mean me, but some people in the social sciences will argue there is no such thing as biology. Mm -hmm. Others think, well, of course biology matters. Well, already, if, if we have that schism, how could we ever meet? Uh, if you don't believe that there is such a thing as innate sex differences, how could we ever meet? So it ends up being a form of intellectual nihilism, right? It's, it's, yes. it's, and, and that's why... Well, I, you, you end up, it's, it's a self-destruction, exactly. really. And, and isn't there a point at which people who cannot 
resolve themselves to accepting some level of reason and reality, aren't they almost ostracizing themselves from society? Shouldn't we be looking at them as almost the parasite that you're right. talking well, about? But, and that's why I'm saying that they should, they should be marginalized yeah. in the public discourse. But for that to happen, you have to intellectually shame them, right? In other words, their voice needs to be laughed out mm -hmm. of the, the, the battleground of ideas, right? It has to, right? It, it, it shouldn't be possible for you to stand up at the Canadian Senate and utter some of the nonsense that the senators directed at mm -hmm. me. That should be something that should be a career ender. But that could only happen if enough people push back against this idiocy. Mm -hmm. If we are just a few voices in the wilderness of the tsunami of lunacy, then they're going to keep winning. Is all of this going to be in your new book? That's all in the book. Oh, I can't wait for that book. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you for giving us some time today. Oh, my pleasure. Great. Cheers. Thank Cheers, you. guys. Thank you so much. Cheers. I am going to tear down your safe space. Brick by brick, I shall smash it with glee. What? Who is that? You cannot stop me from getting inside. I am cold and I am hard. And my name is reality. Oh, no, not reality. Somebody stop him. Take care of him, Jenny. You can't ruin our lives, reality. Our safe space will keep you out dropped. We can face almost anything. But reality, we can do it out. everyone should be entitled to free speech, except progressive left-wing students. They should be denied a platform as part of their education so that they know how it feels. It's called equality and fairness. Could it be any more progressive? I say this because it seems like every week we hear about somebody being banned or shouted down in one of those progressive bubbles of righteous intolerance that we still have the nerve to call universities. In fact, a recent report revealed that free speech effectively no longer exists in four out of five British universities because progressive students are too intellectually delicate to be exposed to ideas that make them uncomfortable by challenging their prejudices and hurting their feelings. So they're demanding and getting what they call the right to be comfortable, the right to a safe space for all students. Inevitably, of course, this right to be comfortable is very selective and only extends to those who hold the correct opinion. Anyone else can expect to be made very uncomfortable indeed by being silenced, either banned outright or shouted down by militant progressive Puritan bigots who think in slogans and who think it's more virtuous to be progressive than to be factually accurate or morally just or to have anything remotely resembling an open mind. Oh, that was the voice of Pat Condell speaking about free speech on campus back on March 2nd, 2015. So there's one guy, Robert, who's been intellectually shaming the campus fascists for quite a while, just as we heard Gad Saad recommend. As a matter of fact, not only shame, I think, uh, another tactic to attack these people, I think, should be ridicule. I think they go hand in hand and probably yes, part and of the I think same that, term. I think that was part of his implication too. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And it is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. 
check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things Just Right about freedom and capitalism. So it's, it's a great pleasure to, to meet you, David. David Haskell, um, Laurier University at Brantford, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. And your uh, area of research is? I'm cross-appointed to digital media and journalism and religion and culture. So I, I do, I've researched media and religion, and uh, for about the last five years, it's more been uh, Christianity in Canada from a sociological perspective, not a theological perspective. Fascinating, yeah. That almost dovetails into... Um, uh, Jordan Peterson's area of uh, interest, yeah, where he talks about myths and, yeah. and things of that nature and how they affect the, the ethos of society and people's yeah. thinking. So uh, it's good to have you on the show. Um, at Laurier, you were part of a task force regarding freedom of speech and creating policy. That's right. Regarding freedom of speech. And what got you interested in that, I expect, was the Lindsay Shepard affair. Right. With Lindsay, of course, her future career is in jeopardy, or certainly has been adversely affected by the policies at Laurier. And recently you just quit that task force. Can you tell us why? Yeah, yeah, sure. So to be on the task force, first of all, you had to be nominated. I was nominated for the task force. I was the uh, person on the task force who really was the most outspoken for free expression. I'd gone into it saying I'm for maximum free expression on campus. Uh, I was the only one to really take that stand of the people who were on the task force. Now, that, that isn't to say that the people on the task force weren't committed to listening and to, to understanding, but I was, going in, I, I really knew where I stood on the issue. But uh, as you said, I just did resign from the task force, and it wasn't because they weren't doing good work. Uh, we'd gotten to a spot where we had a draft statement, mm -hmm. and we put that draft statement out to the community, for their opinion so that they could actually have some input. Uh, we, this was our second round of input. But despite the fact that what came back from the task force was a free expression document, it was going to, at least at this point, allow for what I believe really great protections of freedom of expression on our campus. Just at the last moment outside of the task force, our, our university administration put forth a policy and that policy said that groups would have to pay for security fees in order to bring a speaker in. Now you're saying, well, what does that have to do with everything? Well, in the task force document, we, we had as a team, as a task force, as, as the members together, we'd said that we expect the university as part of this policy to guarantee the voice for marginalized voices. Oh, so white um, men. <laughs> well, here, but, but what you have to realize is that the most marginalized voices, if you look at the, the data, the most marginalized voices on university campuses actually are uh, conservative voices, libertarian voices, and right-of-center voices. They are the least likely to, be, to have free expression. They're the most stifled. So now these groups, conservative, libertarian, objectivist, reasonable people, all, now they have to pay more to speak on campus than the left because... Well, they're the only ones who have to pay. Exactly. Because yeah. if you look at the other data, and I'm quoting a study by a Heterodox Academy, yeah. 
who looked at, and this was U.S. data, um, but it does apply to Canada because I've, I've taken a look at newspapers, uh, but let's not go with the anecdote. I'll just stick with the, the empirical data. What we see in the U.S. is that of disruptions, and disruptions are the things that make you have to pay a security fee, right? Protests. Protests. Vandalism. And threats, violence, violence, right? Yeah. So, so Berkeley. For Berkeley, example. for example. Yeah. So since 2000, and 2000 to 2012, they looked at all of the disruptions that happened on university campuses, and they rated them either moderate or extreme. And it was 90.5% that it was leftist protesters who were causing these disruptions against right-leaning speakers. So, and, and that was from 2000 to 2012. If you look from 2012 until today, it's grown in terms of the left agitating against right-wing speakers, if you look at newspaper articles. You know, if I could stop you there, I bet you that that data is skewed because I can't even imagine 5% of the protests being initiated by what Bob and I would well, call I, I, the right. I was going to uh, um, address that because one of the things Robert and I talk about is that left and right as labels truly only refer to ideas. Yeah. Whereas conservative, radical, re reactionary, those, are, those apply to individuals, to people. And they are defined by what degree of ideas from the left and the right they combine in order to create what they see as their identity. But the issue, to me, the whole idea of free speech is it's an exclusive area of the right in the sense of being the dexterous, in the sense of being individualistic as opposed to the left, which is the collective, yeah. right? And, and the other issue, too, is when people talk about the 5% who are disruptive from the right, let's say maybe they're the, quote, neo-Nazis or something like that. Well, we would regard th those groups on the left just mm -hmm. as, um, oh, as the Nazis were to begin with, because they were the socialist yeah. um, party of Hitler. That's why I was right? suggesting that the Heterodox Academy's data probably looked at neo-Nazis as right-wing agitators, mm -hmm. and we're going, Bob and I would say, well, they're left-wing. But when you look at those people on the right who did agitate, it was often conservative Christians or other conservative people of faith who were agitating against pro-abortion. Yeah, yeah, pro-choice. Uh, oh, pro-abortion, if yeah. you want to word it that way. Yeah, sure. yeah, but, uh, well, pro-choice people. And so, I mean, that's, that's minuscule, right? So and, weird. and even in Canada, if you look at what have we seen in terms of agitation against a speaker of the left, well, we currently have David Suzuki at, at Alberta, and there are right-wing, we'll call them uh, capitalists, right? free market capitalists, who are agitating against him getting that honorary degree. And then uh, there was a case a couple months, well, about six months ago, where St. Paul's University, which is at the University of Ottawa, but it's, it's religiously affiliated with the Catholic Church, there were protesters against a documentary that was going to be uh, shown, and it was um, a pro-choice documentary. But these are rare occasions. Not only rare, I would suggest that when they say protest, it, it pales in comparison to what the word protest means for a leftist. For example, right. a, an anti-abortionist would be outdoors as you, as you come into a building with a sign, right? Maybe a graphic sign, but yeah. still it would most likely be peaceful, a peaceful protest. And if they are ordered to disperse, they would normally disperse. Yeah, they, they, they have that thing going for them uh, of law and order. Yes. In deference to authority. Yes. So they actually play by those rules. The left does not. The left does The not. left would pull your fire alarm. The left would come in and trash the place, what they've done with Jordan Peterson. They'd come in and with bullhorns and shout the man down.
Yeah. That is disruptive. That's trespassing. That's, and if they start into a pushing fight as they have, that's violence and assault. And that's exclusive to the left, in our opinion. It is now. Mm. Uh, I, and I think that, um, so I'm going to be fair here just to say that it really, who has the power and who wants to keep the power? And currently on university campuses, the left has the power and they want to keep the power. So you're, you're right to say that that is what's happening right now at this point in time. For sure. It, and I'm sure you've, you guys have explored the ideas of the moral theory of Jonathan Haidt as well. Well, we know of Jonathan Haidt, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it really falls into what we were just talking about, that the left, according to Haidt, really don't have the taste buds, the moral taste buds for things like deference to authority. That's more of a right-wing thing. So they don't have that in their rule book. So it's okay for them to do disruptive measures that could even lead to violence because for them that's not an immoral thing to do yes. but that is something that's in the rule book or what height would call the moral taste buds of people on the right so what about now at laurier now that they have this policy you've quit the task force over protest of them coming out with a policy before they could even hear what the recommendations of the task force were how is that going to affect uh, debate uh, free speech at laurier i have to say i I really, this, I struggled with this decision, and I'd asked my task force colleagues, I said, you know, let's just not move ahead with this draft in protest, because this policy is prejudicial to a group of marginalized people on our campus. And we said that we were going to defend the marginalized with this document. The document says that. I couldn't rally the support of my colleagues on the task force for that. So in good faith, I couldn't keep saying that this document says that we'll protect marginalized voices. It says that, but here's a policy from my administration that says we're not going to do that. So I, I had to step down, but I call it a stepping down because I'm still hopeful that the, the university will look at this. My administrators, the administrators will look at this and say, you know what? We've had time to contemplate this. It really is prejudicial against one segment of our Laurier community. It really is. And, and I think they need to realize that they currently support left-leaning voices to the tune of a couple hundred thousand dollars. And, and by that, I mean they have funding for our diversity and equity office. Our diversity and equity office, as the historical record, the newspaper record shows, is exclusively in favor of left-leaning opinions mm -hmm. and also is prejudiced against right-leaning students. We do have empirical evidence for that. Sure. So knowing that there is funding for marginalized voices on the left, it seems only equitable that the university should say, we are going to pay these fees. If a, if a right-leaning speaker comes in, we'll pay the fees because this is only fair. And, and to, to that point, it is part of our mission statement at Wilfrid Laurier that we will be equitable. We endorse equity. I mean, it's all over our policy documents. Here's an opportunity to show it. But they, they haven't done that yet. But I'm hopeful, right? I've said I've stepped down, and I'll come back, and, and I'll, again, join that task force and move toward a document that protects free speech. You asked, what, what will happen to the document if I'm not there? I don't know. The, my colleagues on the task force have shown they were willing to compromise. But admittedly, I, I was certainly the one who was advocating for free expression, the maximum free expression within the bounds of the law. That voice is gone now. Mm -hmm. Well, it's moved. And, Sitting right here. Yeah. <laughs> and I would say that, that that could be a problem because there certainly was 
an ideological uniformity within the rest of the task force members. And, and I don't know if they are willing to take as strong a stand as I was. I think, I think we can read between the lines there. Do appreciate you coming by. Bob, do you have any other questions I for David? Gonna, I was just wondering, had Lindsay Shepard not come along and that, not, that incident not happened, mm. what would the environment still be like at Laurier? Or, would, would, or, or do we still have to wait for a second Lin, Lindsay Shepard to come along and push this even further, pardon the pun, in the right direction? We still have all the same faculty hired who were in place when, when mm. this incident happened. Uh, I've not seen anything from my university that says they are going to embrace diversity of ideas or diversity of ideas in hiring. There's definitely a push for diversity hires, but that only applies to external factors. And skin, co- skin color yeah. and culture and, yeah. and religion and things like yeah. that. But that being the case, when you have a group that is an ideological monolith, they will propagate themselves, and also their ideology will become more stringent because there's nothing pushing against them. Mm -hmm. Administration is the only group that could do this, an upper administration, where they actually say, we're going to make sure that we have ideological diversity within the faculty, and we'll do that through hiring committees somehow. Unless that happens, you can expect more, I would say, and sadly, more incidents just like we saw with Lindsay Shepard. Thank you very much, David. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Mr. Worf, I want you to tell me why I shouldn't put you on the next transport out of here. You are well within your right to do so. I'm not talking about my rights. Answer my question. Sir, I realize my actions were in violation of Starfleet regulations, but... Regulations? We're not talking about some obscure technicality, Mr. Worf. You tried to commit premeditated murder. Benjamin, it wasn't murder. Worf and Kern were performing a mock Tavor ritual. It's part of Klingon belief that... I don't give a damn about Klingon beliefs, rituals, or custom. Now, I have given you both a lot of leeway when it comes to following Klingon traditions. But in case you haven't noticed, this is not a Klingon station, and those are not Klingon uniforms you're wearing. There is a limit to how far I'll go to accommodate cultural diversity among my officers, and you've just reached it. nice place to visit, but I certainly wouldn't want to live here. I'm much hope of breaking out. Surprise one of the guards. Get a hold of one of those ray guns. Neil, why do you suppose the queen and her counselors wear those masks? I'd assume for the same reason that Oriental potentates made their wives wear veils. Oh, you mean so the hype boy can't take a peek? Something like that. Brother, they must be knockouts judging by what there is to see. Those masked beauties may be knockouts to you. But I have a sense of foreboding about them. A feeling of something monstrous, evil. So do I. No, I didn't say anything to the Queen. I didn't want to put her on guard. But I'm beginning to think our being here isn't an accident. I'm afraid I must agree with you. What's that? What's that? The ray that destroyed the space station and knocked us off our course may have originated right here. Oh, come off it. How could a bunch of women invent a gizmo like that? Sure, and even if they invented it, how could they aim it? You know how women drivers are. 
So Professor Rick Mehta from Acadia University, you seem to be just a, yet another academic who has come across uh, a problem when it comes to freedom of speech in your classroom between you and your students. Can you fill us in about your particular problem at Acadia University? I think basically the problem is I've managed to get under the skin of three major activist uh, groups on campus. So there's the uh, women in science and engineering, so basically the women's groups, the women in gender studies, and their, um, I guess, related groups by countering their views on biology in terms of explaining sex differences, choices, values. Uh, so that was one aspect. I also did critique the role of feminism, uh, the fact that it, you had a social movement uh, come into the university under the guise of an academic discipline, and then its uh, viewpoints are being spread throughout the uh, academy, uh, which has implications then for people when they graduate and go on into positions of, let's say, teaching or, you know, politics. The trans activists are another group, and I've also expressed concern about the decolonization efforts. Uh, so what really got me, I guess, famous was the tweet I put to Andrew Scheer because I had been concerned about the decolonization, and that was my way of expressing it at a federal level. Can you explain decolonization? Well, basically, within the university, they have a movement that's called decolonization or indigenization. So rather than just adding a perspective, it's about having that approach replace uh, the current curriculum, and, that, and that's being done without consultation and under the guise that if you disagree with it or voice any kind of opposition, that you must ha somehow uh, be endorsing atrocities that, are, that happened in the past. Oh, so it's a, it's a way of expunging the record of the colonial or the European ancestry here in the West and making sure that that voice is not heard? Exactly. Rather than adding an, a, an indigenous voice, you subtract the Western voice. Yeah, and it's not even, an, in my view, even an accurate representation of the indigenous voice because it's, it's just the stereotype of the indigenous being these eco-activists, and we know that it's far more complicated than just that. So what kind of trouble did you get into with your um, university? Well, with the decolonization, when I expressed a viewpoint about that, the dean of arts sent a very rude response just saying you know you you're unscholarly and you're just engaging in confirmation bias and he didn't even say anything about any of my concerns and this was on a public email so this was not just to me personally so he made it public yeah because i expressed it as a concern because i wanted discussion about this issue so, yeah, like why is no one wanted to talk about it and i was very diplomatic in my tone and i included references because so I, I wanted to be a scholarly discussion and the response I got was, you know, you're unscholarly in your approach and you're just looking for confirmation bias, you're grandstanding, and just an absolute discounting of what I had to say without any analysis. Did he not call you in to ask you your point of view and, and your side of the story before he responded to the complaints? Nope, not at all. Rather one-sided, uh, isn't it? Yeah, no, because I put the email out on a Friday at, uh, late in the day before leaving, and I think it was Saturday around 12, 1 p.m. So, yeah, I can easily circulate that email if it was... Mm. Uh, requested. Yeah. So have you found any backlash over this response from the university towards your uh, behavior? Actually, yes. If you go to the Aboriginal People's Television Network on their website, an article that they did about me, and there the media spokesman actually said very specifically that the university is engaging in efforts so that students who are offended by what I had to say don't have to take courses with me. And so the evidence I can give for that is the department uh, did not give me the courses I'd requested. So I've been teaching the large sections of introductory psychology. As an example, the first half, I've taught since 2006 and even had two teaching awards last year. 
they've given me a small section of IntraPsych 1 that's in the second semester with, you know, 75 students roughly. And we don't even know who's actually teaching the first one yet. It's by a new hire, and that position hasn't even been filled. So it's hard to say that he didn't have the ability, right? Uh, my research methods course, the course on critical thinking, that was taken away. So the requ- courses that are required by psychology majors, those were taken away at the departmental level. I did put an appeal of that. That was backed up at the level of the dean of science. And then, of course, there's the VP academic who launched the investigation into me. Hmm. So Where do you see it going from here? Difficult to say. I mean, I met with the investigator, but I can't say anything about that because that's uh, confidential. Mm-hmm. My understanding, at least of what the process is, that the investigator will release a report. Uh, there won't be any recommendations in the report, but uh, that's what goes to the VP academic, and I get a chance to respond. So that's my understanding of the process there. And then in the meantime, the dean wants to meet with me about uh, enacting discipline uh, based on various complaints that were supposedly submitted to my designated head. Do you know who the complainants are? Uh, no. So anonymous? Yeah, I was just told these are the kinds of statements that were made, but I haven't got any specifics. Yeah, or, or I was told that I was used like, uh, what do you call it, um, non-scholarly sources. I was even accused of uh, test questions not being based on course content. But aren't you but a professor? Yes, I am. So doesn't that make whatever you say necessarily scholarly? You're a scholar. Yes, exactly, but (laughs) not in their view anymore. But yes, the dean wants to meet with me about uh, enacting discipline, and he does not want me to have a lawyer present. So my lawyer said to him in an email, uh, you can't make the reasonable argument that my client's allowed to have legal representation on the one hand and then denied on the other. So that was on April 19th, and then this week, of course, my lawyer is away and out of the country, and that's when the dean said, oh, I want to meet with you next week about uh, a disciplinary meeting to discuss discipline. So I just uh, responded back, is that this is what my lawyer said on April 19th, please include it in your coordination. He also wanted to discuss some other issues, and my response was, uh, please follow the collective agreement unless there's a misunderstanding on my part. Well, we wish you well. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, some very compelling insights and personal challenges being faced by our guest today, Robert. Any further observations to make before we wrap up? I would encourage our listeners to give consideration to looking up the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. Just type that into Google. I would encourage you to go to their Facebook page and like it share their content, and perhaps even join the organization. It is open, you know, and it's not very expensive. I think it's $25 a year. And um, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised that you're supporting an organization that is fighting for freedom. And I want to remind our listeners, too, that all of the interviews you heard on our show today will be available on Just Right's YouTube channel in the coming weeks ahead. And, of course, released about the same time that we'll be releasing the total presentations of the speakers as given to the audience itself. Yes, indeed. Well, fortunately, at least as of this broadcast, we don't have to ask for someone else's permission to speak, nor are there any limits placed on our speech, save for Father Time, as our weekly clock approaches the 5942 mark. Be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Hogan, 
I sent for you because it is necessary for us to have a little chat. I could be transferred, am I? Why, you like it here? Like is hardly the word. I'm just like a home away from home. <laughs> sure, did you hear that? There's a war on. He's a prisoner, yet he calls it a home. I think he's stir-crazy. Silence, you will speak only when you're spoken to. You spoke to me, Herr Commandant. <laughs> Next time, don't answer. 